0: Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. To start today, a quick thank you to Tim Blank, my latest supporter on Patreon. Thanks, Tim. Really appreciate the support. I'm delighted that for the second time, today's case was researched and written by a friend of the show, the True Crime Enthusiast. Like me, he is particularly interested in lesser known crimes. And I strongly suggest, if you haven't already, please check out his excellent blog at truecrimeenthusiast.wordpress.com or catch him on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. This week, let's take you back to July 1980. July 1980 was a month where Ronald Reagan gained the nomination for US President at the Republican National Convention in Detroit. The population of China hit 1 billion people that month and the classic album Back in Black was released by the rock band ACDC. On the 19th of July, the 1980 Summer Olympics began in Moscow. Although to many the event was tainted by those good old politicians using sport as a political weapon. This meant that many Western countries boycotted the Games. Just thank goodness our political leaders have learnt the lessons of the past, leaving sport out of their disagreements, and that the tensions between Russia and the West are now disappeared. Will we ever learn? In England... On the same day that the Olympics began, which was a Saturday, the neighbours of young married couple Stephen and Hilary Burroughs were becoming increasingly anxious they hadn't seen either of them for a few days. The couple lived in the quiet Milton Road districts of the Brentwood area of Essex, to the north of London, adjacent to the M25 motorway, and now probably most famous as the home of Alan Sugar of Apprentice fame and the reality show TOWIE. Come on, I know you're a fan. The July of 1980 was a warm and dry one, yet the milk deliveries from the previous day and that Saturday remained on the doorstep. Neighbours had also noticed that the lights had been left on continuously since the Thursday evening, the 17th of July, and that the bedroom and lounge curtains had stayed shut throughout the Friday and the Saturday, and this was most unusual. Stephen Burroughs was 26 and he worked in the catering trade. His wife Hilary was a year younger than him. They were a typical young couple who'd been married for about two years and had moved into the corner property of Milton Road, number 41, in the summer of 1978. Milton Road was at the time classed as being the older part of Brentwood. The ground floor was near open plan, with the kitchen leading off to a separate dining room and lounge. Stairs then led from the dining room to a bathroom and two bedrooms upstairs. Outside consisted of a small front patch of grass, And a considerably larger back garden, while the side of the house was bordered by a thick, unruly hedge that at least gave the couple some privacy. Nearly a year earlier, the couple had experienced a brush with fame when they were featured as part of a TV series focusing upon weddings made by London Weekend Television. For people in the UK, I'm sure you can remember that iconic opening sequence that used to be featured for TV programmes made by that company. In 1977, London Weekend Television had commissioned a series focused on weddings and worldwide marriage traditions. Stephen and Hillary were chosen as the British couple who'd be the main feature of the show. Camera crews shadowed the couple during preparations for their wedding and had filmed the ceremony, the reception and had even filmed the couple as they left for their honeymoon. This early fly-on-the-wall documentary series was shown twice on British television in 1978 and each time it was a big hit in the ratings. This brush with fame had not gone to the couple's heads. They remained a down-to-earth, cheery couple. They would always stop and speak and would wave and greet neighbours whenever they saw them. Although they tended to keep themselves to themselves, they were a popular couple and liked by all. So when they hadn't been seen for a few days, their neighbours, although concerned, they were loath to appear nosy by knocking on the door, as we all would. But finally... Their concern was enough that they felt the need to contact police and voice their concerns, who responded by dispatching a patrol car to the house late in the evening of Saturday the 19th of July, 1980. The police who arrived at the scene noticed the milk remained on the doorstep of number 41 and tried knocking loudly but got no reply. Whilst one of the constables checked the front of the house, the other went to the rear of the property to investigate. The house was in darkness from the rear, but then the officer noticed that a small window of the house was about a foot open with a small oval-shaped hole visible beside of the catch. Suspecting that a crime had been committed, the officers radioed their findings to the station and after being granted permission, forced entry into the house. What the officers discovered inside was to stay with them for the rest of their careers. Both officers would later say it was the worst, most disturbing crime scene they'd ever attended. The shaken police officers retreated to preserve the scene and it was only when the investigating officers and scene of crime officers arrived that the full horror of what had happened at number 41 Milton Road could be appreciated. Moving into the dining room stroke living room area, the bodies of both Stephen and Hilary Burroughs were found lying naked on the carpet. They were covered in blood and each of them had been tied at the wrist. Hilary, with a pair of her own nylon stockings, Stephen with a blue necktie, a pair of Hilary's nylon stockings and a pillowcase. He also had a dressing gown belt and nylon stockings tied tightly around his neck. Both had been stabbed repeatedly and Stephen had also been battered viciously around the head with a heavy object. Blood was everywhere. It was all over the living room, up the stairs and covered the downstairs furniture. Let's just pause here and consider the reality of the scene. Can you imagine being the first police officer to walk into this absolute horror. I've read numerous cases of officers who, like those in the armed forces, couldn't ever escape from the images and smells of gruesome crime scenes. Following the large quantities of blood that formed a trail upstairs, investigators found yet more extensive blood staining in one of the bedrooms. It seemed that at least one of the couple had been attacked here before being forced downstairs. The house had then been ransacked thoroughly from top to bottom. Attempting to piece together what exactly had happened, detectives believed that the murders had most likely happened two nights earlier, on the Thursday night. This seemed likely, as it tallied with the neighbours' reports of left-on lights, still-drawn curtains and two days' worth of milk delivery neglected on the doorstep. It appeared that the couple had been in bed, while the killer had broken into their home through the back window and attacked them in the bedroom, possibly while they were still asleep in bed. Pathology reports following the autopsies chilled investigators. Stephen had been killed by three stab wounds that had penetrated his chest, wounds that had been inflicted with a seven-inch knife and that had been delivered with such force and ferocity that the full length of the blade had entered his body. Hilary had been restrained in a similar way, but she'd been even more brutally slaughtered. She'd been stabbed at least 15 times in the chest and stomach and the killer had used two knives to kill her. One was the same knife that had been used to kill Stephen, but several of the wounds on Hilary showed that a knife of a different shaped blade had also been used. Both knives were later found to have been taken from a set of French chef knives that the Burrows had been given as a wedding present. There was no evidence that Hilary had been raped or sexually assaulted at all, but in the opinion of the pathologist, the couple had been subjected to some degree of torture. This was backed up by the findings in the house, where the mattress on the couple's bed was pockmarked with several deep, clean stab wounds. It seemed as though the killer, or killers, had built up to the horrific events to come by waking the couple and terrifying them by demonstrating just what was going to happen to them. It seemed likely that Stephen had put up a fierce struggle to defend him and his wife, but he'd been overpowered, either by being battered around the head or stabbed, and then Hillary had been killed too. Hilary was found to have been three months pregnant at the time with their first child. It was also noted at the autopsy that both Stephen and Hilary appeared to have consumed brandy before they died. There was an empty brandy bottle at the scene and alcohol had been splashed over the corpses of them both. Stephen also had traces of it in his mouth. Was it possible that the killer made some sort of toast to his victims? It soon became clear to investigators that the original motive had been robbery. The house had been thoroughly ransacked and several items of value were missing, including a wallet containing cash, Hilary's diamond engagement ring and several other items of jewellery that had been taken from her dressing table. This gave police one possible theory as to why the couple had been targeted. On the evening that the couple were murdered, Hilary had attended a jewellery party at a friend's house. Perhaps someone knew she was going there and had followed her home, perhaps mistakenly thinking that she would expensive jewelry in the house. Or had someone, known the couple from their appearance on their wedding series on TV, deliberately targeted the house, thinking the couple were very comfortably off, having been paid lots of money for their appearance? Whatever the reason, the police just couldn't understand why someone would use this excessive level of violence. Forensic examination of the scene led police to believe that the killer had spent a number of hours at the home following the murder and the search at the house yielded a number of fingerprints, and bizarrely, the imprint of a pair of lips on the couple's bedroom door. This was particularly strange. Why would you, well, apparently kiss the bedroom door? The other possibility was that the murderer was either careless and had walked into the door, or else was drunk and had stumbled into it. Detectives were convinced that this was someone who had offended before, an experienced burglar who had gravitated to murder. They also concluded that the killer was a highly dangerous person who was likely to strike again if he wasn't caught soon. Aside from the detailed forensic search at the borough's house, intensive house-to-house inquiries were carried out, along with searches of the local area to determine whether the killer had discarded any clothing or stolen goods. Neighbours of the couple were spoken to, and vehicles close to the crime scene were examined and checked. Nobody had reported hearing any screams or shouts or any sounds of a struggle. But as the couple had the corner house and next door to them was empty, this did not surprise investigators. But it did disappoint them. Deciding to play on the borough's status as Brentwood's TV wedding couple in order to get people to come forward and volunteer information, Detective Superintendent Peter Blythe, the officer leading the inquiry, held a press conference in which he stressed the importance of catching the killer before he, and police assumed it was a he, struck again, using a photograph of the couple taken on their wedding day, and one that had been used for the TV series, aiming really just to bring home just how shocking a crime this was, and happening to normal, everyday people. Detective Superintendent Blythe told reporters, This was a particularly horrendous and very tragic crime which went horribly wrong. This man could strike again at any moment, and believe me, having seen the ghastly circumstances that he left the house in, he needs to be caught, and caught now. It is of course important to mass appeal for information, especially in the direct geographical area that any crime has been committed. But because Brentwood is so close to London, it's about 20 minutes on the train into Liverpool Street. The Essex detectives looking for the borough's killer knew that there was a distinct possibility that the man that they were looking for could not just live in the local area of Brentwood, but in many of the districts of East North London and Essex, perhaps even further out. This would mean they had a massive pool of suspects to examine, all the while the possibility that the longer he was at large, the more risk there was of this man striking again at any moment. The murder detectives worked diligently with this at the forefront of their minds, and as a result of their extensive local inquiries. They soon identified a person of extreme interest that they needed to eliminate from the murder inquiry. Reports had filtered through from a number of sources about a man who had drawn attention to himself for his aggressive behaviour and his excessive drinking in several pubs in the Brentwood area on the evening that the boroughs were murdered. The man was described as being in his late twenties to mid-thirties, with laser-sharp, staring blue eyes. He was generally unkempt and with straggling fair hair. He was shabbily dressed and with a severe reddening of the skin on one side of his face, probably due to some sort of medical condition. Throughout the evening, this man had been seen by numerous people as he'd visited a number of pubs in quite near proximity to the borough's home, and he'd been noted to drink a mix of pints of lager in tandem with several short measures of spirits. He'd exchanged angry words with a customer in one of these pubs over some spilled drink, and was remembered because the situation had nearly disintegrated into a brawl. Close to closing time, the man was asked to leave as a result of this altercation and he left the pub loudly protesting and being generally abusive. As you know, these were the days before social media and 24-hour rolling news coverage. The detailed description of this man was issued on bulletins to detectives across the county and sharp-eyed CID officers in London suspected he was a possible match for a well-known burglar and violent offender, 34-year-old Russell John Hart. Hart was a heavy drinker and a habitual criminal who had a long record for offences of violence. He'd been in trouble with police on many occasions and had served prison sentences for a number of assaults and other violent crimes. He was known to have connections in the areas of East London, Romford and Brentwood and he led a nomadic lifestyle, only ever working sporadically by drifting from casual labouring job to a casual labouring job. During the periods of unemployment between these jobs, Hart supported himself through theft, burglary and check fraud. He emerged as the prime suspect and in order to eliminate him from the inquiry, copies of the many fingerprints that had been removed from the borough's house were rushed to Scotland Yard and compared to the fingerprints that police had on file for Russell Hart. Detectives were delighted that Hart's fingerprints were found to be a perfect match for the many samples taken from the scene of the murder. He was the killer. Eight days after the murder, the police mugshot of Russell Hart was released to the press and was shown on television, with Essex police stating that they wished to speak to him urgently in connection with the murders of Stephen and Hilary Burroughs and that he was to be considered as extremely dangerous and not to be approached in any circumstances. This was an occasion where an appeal worked very well, or perhaps a conscience got the better of someone. For the very next day, the 28th of July 1980, Russell Hart walked into Chelmsford Police Station and gave himself up. Hart immediately made a full confession. He had murdered Stephen Hillary, but due to his excessive drinking, he insisted he remembered very little of the actual killing except for seeing blood all over the blade of one of the knives. He also claimed that after the killings, he'd gone back upstairs and actually settled down to have a peaceful sleep on the borough's bed. The rest of the events were hazy, he claimed. Hart then told detectives he'd not known that Hillary Burroughs had been pregnant, until he'd read about the crimes in the newspapers. He told them, This means that I've really killed three people then, haven't I? It's terrible. I deserve to go away forever for this. Following his confession, Russell Hart was remanded in custody, charged with the murders of Stephen and Hilary Burroughs, and was imprisoned awaiting trial. Hart appeared in the dock at Chelmsford Crown Court on the 26th of January 1981, and entered a plea of not guilty to murder, but instead guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Why exactly he'd committed the crime and the exact sequence of events that occurred in the borough's house that evening were left unclear. Raymond Sears QC acting for the Crown told the court, the full horror of what went on in that house for an unknown period of time to that quiet and loving couple will probably never be known. It died with them that evening and is locked in the defendant's mind. What we do know is that the couple were savagely butchered and most probably tortured by this man. How long they suffered is not known, nor is the motive for the horrific attack. A psychiatrist who examined Hart while he was on remand awaiting trial testified that he had a history of disturbed behaviour and psychological problems. Hart had been known and feared as a dangerous, violent loner, even in his early years, and he developed an uncontrollable craving for alcohol from a very early age. This alcohol dependence played a large role in his life of crime as he would regularly steal money to pay for alcohol to satisfy him. It became normal for him to drink heavily throughout the day. Indeed, at age just 16, it was not uncommon for Hart to drink up to 10 pints of beer a day, right up there of William Haig. It was whilst drinking that Hart became most violent and surly and he was known and feared throughout the local community when he was in this state. He was eventually caught stealing money and sent to a young offender's institution. If you've read my blogs at UKTrueCrime.com, you know my thoughts on these appalling places, which aren't any more useful today than they were back then. Please, please, please stop sending our children to prison. It doesn't work. Whilst incarcerated, Hart was forced to satisfy his cravings for alcohol by downing quantities of shaving lotion or distilling a combination of metal and shoe polish to drink. Surprise, surprise. The young offender's institution achieved nothing except possibly making Hart even more violent. On his release he met a girl and they married in the late 1960s but this marriage was not a happy one as Hart's violence was never far from the surface and his wife suffered terrible physical abuse at his hands. A cycle of imprisonment, release and offending continued until after one violent encounter too many Hart was sent to Broadmoor Secure Hospital in the early 70s. Hart served four years in Broadmoor, but it didn't serve as a cure, obviously, and he went immediately back to his destructive cycle. Not long after being released, Hart stabbed and almost killed his wife whilst in a drunken frenzy. Due to a combination of his medical problems and his alcohol dependency, plus an unbelievably lenient judge, he was given a paltry 12-month suspended prison sentence. His long-suffering wife fled from the house in fear for her life following this verdict, never to return and soon afterwards she divorced him. Only a year later, Hart was again in trouble with police, and this time he was jailed for three and a half years, after admitting a number of offences, including burglary and dishonesty involving fraudulent checks. While serving his sentence at Lewis Prison, near Brighton in Sussex, Hart was involved in an argument with another inmate, while both were in the prison gym. As a result, Hart stabbed the man in the chest with a homemade knife, puncturing one of his lungs. This incident turned him an extra four years, which were added to his original sentence. But Hart was back on the streets at the start of 1980. He'd been released early from the sentence, just five months before the evening that he went drinking around Brentwood, before brutally murdering Stephen and Hilary Burroughs. That evening, when the pubs had all shut, it seemed that a drunken Hart had roamed the area, looking for a suitable house to burgle, and had just purely at random chosen the Burroughs' house. As regular listeners to this podcast will know I'm fascinated by the fact that though we're assured that most crimes are committed by those known to us so many still seem to be random with victims just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. If only Hart hadn't been asked to leave the pub for fighting at the exact time that he was or if any other tiny event had happened differently it is likely that Stephen Hillary would still be alive today. Back to his murder trial. Hart was diagnosed as suffering from a gross personality disorder by the testifying psychiatrist at his trial, Dr. Henry Pillen. Pillen told the court Russell Hart believes he's being persecuted and constantly followed. He also hears voices in his head. Russell John Hart was ordered to be detained indefinitely and was sent to Rampton Maximum Security Hospital, with the presiding judge, Mr. Justice Chapman, telling Hart, The public must be protected from people like you. This was a case of quite awful animal ferocity of a type that could only be perpetrated by someone who was totally unbalanced mentally. Hart was then taken down to begin his sentence, and he remains in prison to this day. The legal proceedings almost contained an unprecedented piece of evidence that had never been seen in a British court of law. If you remember, when forensic officers were dusting for prints at the crime scene, they discovered that bizarre imprint of a pair of lips on the borough's bedroom door detectives managed to remove a very clear imprint of the lips which allowed them to establish the killer had stood listening at the bedroom door with his mouth pressed directly against the door. When Russell Hart was arrested, police took an imprint of his lips and they were found to be a perfect match. A dentist had produced a mould of the print taken from the bedroom door and a photograph was taken and blown up to be used in evidence in court should it be required. Although this was not as unique as a fingerprint, Police felt confident they could show that the lips on the bedroom door were of the same thickness of Hart's and therefore it was highly likely that the print belonged to him. This was a technique that had been used in legal proceedings in Japan and Mexico but it had never been used before in the UK. It was, however, not used this time as Hart pleaded guilty by reason of diminished responsibility. Police considered the possibility that Hart was responsible for other unsolved murders in the London area. This included the unsolved murders of expectant mother Linda Farrow in Woodford Green just a few miles from Brentwood in January 1979 and the unsolved September 1975 murders of bank manager's wife Iris Thompson and her 79-year-old mother Caroline Wood who were both stabbed to death in the Shenfield area of Brentwood. When Hart was arrested, his background and movements at the Times in question were looked at and police were later to conclude that Hart was unlikely to be the killer in either of the cases. Both crimes remain unsolved to this day. The murders of Stephen and Hilary Burroughs was both a savage and, on a human level, a terribly sad crime. It would be tragic enough anyway, but it is one that's made even more poignant by the fact that Hilary was pregnant at the time of her death with the couple's first child. Hart has never explained exactly what drove him to such violence, particularly against Hilary. He's either unwilling to, or was truly unable to understand or even explain his actions on the evening of the 17th of July, 1980. Regardless of the cause, be it alcohol abuse or any other reason, the fact remains that Russell Hart was a dangerous killer and he needed to be taken off the streets in the interest of public safety. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. Once again, I must give a huge thanks to friend of the show, the True Crime Enthusiast, for bringing to our attention such a fascinating case, and one that was unknown to me. Please check out his website at truecrimeenthusiast.wordpress.com and follow him on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. A quick big thank you to Bakshi Alalooji and Tessa Som for their positive reviews on iTunes this week. If you have a spare moment, why not log on to iTunes now and leave the review you keep meaning to write as it really helps new listeners discover this podcast. That's all for me for now. So until we speak again next week, cheerio. With the Lucky Land Sluts, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts.